0: In this week's episode of BSD Now, we talk about the world's first OpenZFS-based live image, PreBSD version to Git migration videos and commentary from Monolosh, previously Instant Workstation 2020 is what we briefly show you, we tell you about how Dan Langell does his shutdown mechanism testing, Login LDAP has been added to OpenBSD and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. Now, episode 370, Testing Shutdown, recorded for the 23rd of September 2020. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to www.tarsnap.com slash BSD Now for the online backup for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling.
1: And I'm Alan Jude.
0: Welcome to this week's episode. We have, as always, headlines for you, but that's not all that we have in this episode, but we usually start with the headlines. And this week we have FuryBSD 2020, quarter three, the world's first OpenZFS-based live image. So over at, uh, of course, furybsd.org from Joe Maloney. They write, or he writes that FreeRBSD is a tool to test drive stock FreeBSD desktop images in read and write mode to see if it will work for you before installing. In order to provide the most reliable experience possible by preserving the integrity of the system, the LiveCD now leverages ZFS, compression, replication, a memory file system, and re which is pivot root. Ooh, sounds exciting. Uh, 13.0 coming next year, so that's FreeBSD, will build on this by allowing further enhancements to the solution with the added Z-standard compression support. And uh, work is also on the way uh, with the GhostBSD development team to see if this new methodology is a good fit for that project and can be integrated.
1: Cool. And they have links to download the ISOs and try it out. Um, Super useful if you are actually going to... uh you know, visit a, an in-person computer store to buy your laptop and be able to try it out off a live CD uh, and make sure it's going to work. Or just, you know, any machine you want to try it out on without, you know, uh, potentially harming what's on the disk uh, and make sure that BSD is going to be happy with it before you try to install it.
0: Yeah, it could maybe also you be used as a um, rescue CD
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes when you want a rescue system, you want one that's got a bit of a GUI and maybe let you access a web browser so you can look up instructions on how to fix something while trying to fix it rather than just be stuck at a terminal.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little bit of a comfy GUI might uh, give you a bit of a helping hand.
1: Well, you know, uh, a lot of us are maybe spoiled by, you know, I have my working computer to look things up on and then the computer that's not working to fix. Uh, but sometimes you only have one computer.
0: Yeah, that's good to go, and you have your um, desktop environments available: XFCE, there's KDE, uh, Firefox. So that should give you at least a way to browse the web in a normal fashion.
1: Yep, and they replaced the uh, the union FS they've been using previously with a compressed ZFS memstick.
0: Ah, yes. I wonder if that will definitely be uh, a nice way of getting started for some people to try out FreeBSD or even get to know the latest features that uh, we got uh, from OpenZFS.
1: Next up over on uh, Werner Losch's uh, random hacking blog, he has the FreeBSD Subversion to Git migration, part one. Why? So as we've talked about a little bit before, the FreeBSD project is in the process of migrating from Subversion to Git. And the main question is, or many people's question is why? Uh, so, he says, with luck, I'll be writing a few of these blog posts uh, as FreeBSD's move to get later this year gets closer and closer. So, to answer the question why, he says, there are a number of factors motivating the change. We'll explore the reasons from long-term viability of subversion to wider support for tools that will make the project better. So today, I'm going to enumerate some of these points. There are some logical points around how the decision was made. Uh, I'm not really going to get into the politics of how we do that here. While interesting for insiders who like to argue and cripple, it was not necessarily relevant to the larger community who just needs to understand what's going to happen. So first up, why move away from subversion in the first place? Well, the Apache Foundation, who had originally, well not originally built, but had been maintaining subversion for the last quite a few years, has found, you know, has been the caretaker uh, and the main user of subversion because they had Thousands of repos as all the Apache uh, Foundation projects use Subversion, but they've moved all of their repos to Git. While they're still technically the care deeper of Subversion, because not every one of the repos runs on it anymore, we can expect that development to become much slower. This is a worrying development because for the foreseeable future, there'll be less and less Subversion development. And that means that the FreeBSD project will need to undertake the support to make sure Subversion does all the things we need to do. and you know, if we're the only big user left, we're likely the only one to run into users that only big user, or run into bugs that only big users run into. With LLVM also having moved from Subversion to Git, that leaves FreeBSD as the last large open source project still using Subversion, you know, and we're taking a lot of lessons in this migration from how Apache and LLVM managed to migrate uh, to Git. And there are very real concerns about the health and viability of the Subversion ecosystem, especially compared to the thriving and vibrant uh, Git ecosystem. But it's not just support for Subversion the the application itself. You know, Subversion is is mature enough that it's not likely having very many bugs. While there may be features we want, we could probably survive you know in maintenance mode on Subversion. But the entire ecosystem around software development is moving away from subversion to other tools. So by switching to Git, we get access to much better CI support. You know, while some of the tools we use, like Fabricator, have some level of SVN support, they are much more designed around Git. So Git has more support for all the newer CI tools. Um, this will allow us, once things are fully phased in, to increase the quality of the code going into the tree, as well as greatly reduced build breakages and accidental regressions. While one can use CI tools outside of Git, integrating it into a Git workflow requires less discipline on part of the developers and less time, which is, uh, you know, we'd like our developers to spend as much of their time building code as possible and not have to spend a lot of it doing busy work or, you know, work that could be automated by CI. Mm-hmm. But that'll make it easier for them to fix issues found by CI as part of the commit and merge process rather than trying to clean up after the fact you know this means more problems can be found earlier and fixed uh, before they interrupt other people we do get better merging git merging facilities are much better than subversion you can more easily curate patches as well as since git has this rebase based workflow you can also maintain a series of patches it can be quite difficult in subversion in order to you know if you have your change broke into like four logical commits Stacking those on top of each other and, and keeping all four commits separate and up to date uh, can be very cumbersome in Subversion. And it's kind of almost a free feature in Git. Another big thing is more robust mirroring. So, mirroring in Subversion is a bit strange. There's this SVN sync protocol, but it mostly consists of recreating the repo in a not necessarily bit identical way. Uh, and so, one of the problems we're uh, dealing with right now as part of the conversion to Git is that none of the SVN mirrors agree on the source of truth. They all have minor differences, like oh, this commit actually happened two seconds later than it says on the tin, and so on. And this is causing uh, some issues. Whereas with Git, because it's basically a hash of a hash of a hash, everything is identical, or the trees don't match, uh, and it just is interesting that way. Uh, also, Git uh, has the ability to sign. Uh, commits. So you can uh, have more authenticity on who made the commit and so on. Then you get into the features provided by third-party sites. Mirroring also opens up uh, access to those third-party tools like GitLab or GitHub, Gitea or whatever. In terms of automated testing and continuous integration, uh, tests can be run when branches are pushed. Both these platforms have significant collaboration tools as well, which will support groups going off and creating new features uh, for FreeBSD. While one can use these things to a limited degree with Subversion and the way we mirror it to GitHub, the full power of those tools isn't really available until we convert to Git. It also improves the user submitted patch tracking and integration. One area that the project has struggled with is patch integration. We currently have no clear way to submit patches that will be acted on in a timely fashion or at least that's the criticism we get. We do have ways, uh, but they're only partially effective as integrating patches into the tree. Pull requests of various flavors offer a centralized way to accept patches and have tools to review them. This should lower the friction to people submitting patches, as well as make it easier for developers to review the patches. You know, if there's a patch and it's just sitting there, it doesn't, not much happens with it. But if there's a patch and it has results attached to it saying, you know, this has been tested. It doesn't break any of the test cases. We know it compiles everything, and all those additional steps the developer would normally have to do before merging it, and it everything's done, it means merging a small patch, a one-line patch from somebody, goes from being a thirty-plus minute exercise, uh, or sometimes even hours if you have to wait for a universe build or something, to a, a single-digit number of minutes, where it's just, you know, check the commit message and do the merge and it's done yeah this will provide uh, a much better signal to noise ratio while it's not a panacea for the problem you know we still need developers to look at the patches and do something with them it will make much better use of our scarce developer time and we also have some people have said that git strictly speaking isn't a pure source control management system it is more of a collaboration tool that happens to support versioning this may sound like a knock on git but really it's git's greatest strength Git's distributed model allows it uh, to be easier and to allow more frequent collaboration. You know, there are whole websites that have been built around the concept of being able to easily collaborate on the source code and show the power of easy collaboration to amplify the efforts and to build a community. If you're one developer working on something by yourself, then, you know, maybe the advantages of Git aren't that big, but we're hundreds of developers working on, you know, hundreds of thousands of lines of code uh, or millions of lines of code, and every little bit That makes it easier for us to work together means we're getting uh, more out of the tools. All of this is before we get to the skill set argument. Kids these days mostly know git and not subversion, and so currently if they want to contribute to FreeBSD they often end up having to learn subversion. Uh, That has had increasingly become a source of friction. The argument is supported both by anecdotal evidence of people complaining about having to learn subversion to interact with FreeBSD, about professors having to take the time to teach how to use subversion, uh, to their students when they want to teach courses based on FreeBSD, etc. In addition, studies in the industry have shown a migration to Git away from some of the other alternatives is happening all over the place. Git now has between 80 and 90% of the market, depending on which data you look at, so it's widely used and that our non-use of it uh, is the source of friction to getting new developers. Of course, we're not worried about just getting new developers. It's if we look at the current uh, crop of FreeBSD developers, we're getting to a plurality of them are using git and then just carrying the patches back to SVN to commit them Uh, but doing all their work in progress stuff in git because it makes it easier to curate and keep a patch a long running patch set going Uh, it makes it easier to collaborate with people to share the code with people and to, to work together on it or even just to work on it offline and so on. And since a majority of the code being developed on FreeBSD now is being developed in Git, it makes sense to move to Git. But there are downsides. You know, Git has no keyword expansion, so that dollar sign FreeBSD dollar sign tag in the files won't get filled out. You can quibble over the Git add-ons that do this sort of thing, uh, and whether the information added is actually useful. You know, in subversion, you have a date and a, and a monotonically increasing uh, revision number. With Git, you have a hash, which isn't necessarily, uh, you know, you can't, if you have two hashes, uh, you can't instantly tell which one's newer than the other and so on. And the article goes into the fact that, you know, originally in Subversion and, and CVS, this was just dollar sign ID. But then if you had the version from OpenBSD and the version from NetBSD, which are both CVS, you, wouldn't be able to tell which one was which, or you know, both of these files have a version one point three point seven three, and they're actually different. And so we basically all switched to having dollar sign you know foo BSD uh, to separate them out, but you know it still doesn't help that much. The other one is Git doesn't have a running count of commits. You know you can work around this in a number of ways. You can, you can tell you know from this branch point so far there have been X new commits and so on, but that doesn't really tell you the same thing as the version number uh, but part of the reason for that is that you know your tree doesn't have to track the official tree quite so closely uh, and in that case you know you have the same problem with subversion or not where if you're making a modified version of a BSD your revision numbers aren't going to match anyway. The third one is probably the bigger one which is there is no good BSD license git client. At the moment. Until recently, there was no C client that could be imported into the tree. While one might debate whether or not it's a good idea, there's a strong cultural heritage of having all the things you need built into the base system, and it's kind of hard to shrug that off. OpenBSD has been working on GOT, or Game of Trees, uh, which has an agreeable license, but has a completely different command line interface. You know, whether that's actually a better interface than git or not is beside the point. So it has its issues, uh, which aren't relevant here, but it is maturing nicely and may be uh, a good alternative. Uh, even with the current restrictions, it is usable. There's an active port of it for FreeBSD, even you know, after working through a bunch of the open isms. The OpenBSD people uh, are open to making a portable version of GOT. Uh, so that's encouraging where we can get, you know, those open isms spun off a little so they'll be easier to to pick out. Um, there's also other attempts to write a BSD or ISC or MIT licensed git client. That's not as different as GOT, but have to wait for one of those to mature um, before they're really that useful. And of course, finally, change is hard. It's easy to keep using the same tools with the same workflows with the same people as you did yesterday. Learning a new system is difficult. Migrating one workflow to another is tricky. You have to balance the accumulated knowledge and tooling benefits versus the cost it will take to move to something new. The Git migration team views moving from Subversion to Git as the first step uh, in many steps of improving and refining FreeBSD's workflow. As such, we've tried to create a Git workflow that will be familiar to old users and developers, but at the same time, allow for innovation in the future and familiarity with people who have been used other Git workflows. So in conclusion, although it's not without risk or uh, engineering trade-offs, the bulk of the evidence strongly suggests that moving to Git will increase our productivity, improve project participation, grow the community, increase the quality of FreeBSD, and produce a better system in the end. It will give us a platform we can also re engineer other aspects of the project. And this will come at the cost of retooling our release process, our source distribution infrastructure, and developers need to learn some new tools. The cost will be worth it uh, and it will pay dividends for years to come. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty solid analysis by Juan And uh, there's also his YouTube video about the same topic. So there is uh, more to watch there.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the video covers basically a simple Rosetta Stone. It's here's one of the things you commonly do in subversion and here's how to do it and get
0: yeah so that's all right it's time for the news roundup this week we have found the freebsd instant workstation of 2020 so Oh, the article here writes, or lets us know that a little over a year ago, they published an instant workstation script for FreeBSD, and that is, of course, linked there. Uh, The idea is to have an installed FreeBSD system, then run a shell script that uses only base system utilities and installs, and configures a workstation setup for you. Pretty clever, huh? So the script lives on GitHub and has some pull requests submitted and issues filed over the course of a year. And that's, of course, linked as well. Um, They've gone and implemented them, so the script is slightly longer and more involved now. Okay, Uh, Support for more operating environments has landed. Support for application installations has also landed. Uh, This covers basically their own application needs. uh, that ticks all the boxes and goes to the races, (laughs) but the support in general is there if uh, someone wants to say Haskell development, for example, to the mix. Uh, There was also VMware support submitted, so you can run this in VMware. That's interesting uh, of its own. SDDM and Polkit configuration has been introduced, so you can shut down and reboot from inside KDE Plasma environments with the leave menu. That's very convenient. And uh, that's a tip from Shurik, they write, slightly adjusted to be less overall permissive following the Polkit manual. Cool. And uh, the script is updated intermittently when new PRs come in or when they have time or when they have to reinstall a machine and things do not behave the way they think they should. Uh, If you want a quick KDE Plasma experience with FreeBSD, head over to FuryBSD, which does live ISO images with a variety of environments. Very cool. You should definitely check this out, if, especially if you don't really want, oh, uh, I forgot this to install, and oh, I need to install that as well. So Instant Workstation gives you something to start with without going through all the manual setup again. Now, ever blogging his adventures uh, in computing and BSD in particular, uh, which is important and interesting to us, uh, Dan Langill has given us yet another blog post about not testing the shutdown mechanism which is part of a series of three posts, and this is the second one. So NUT is uh, the system that he's setting up, and the first part is also linked there in case you uh, want to start there. But um, this post here is uh, dealing with adjusting the startup and shutdown times to be sure everything proceeds as required. So what Dan wants to do, uh, he wants to test the host shutdown mechanism without unplugging the UPS from the mains, powering off the UPS, and Without powering off the servers, so he has just updated all the hosts and the jails uh, on those hosts as well, which includes both patching the operating system for recent vulnerabilities, previous D yeah, dash update fetch install, and updating all the installed packages, package upgrade, and he almost always follows that practice when rebooting the servers. Okay, so to simulate a power outage, he's using the testing shutdown sections of the documentation, so that in particular is uh, a separate link to network uh, networkuptools.org. And according to man UPS, DRVCTL, UPS, driver control, uh, dash T, enable testing mode. This also enables debug mode. Testing mode makes UPS drive CTL display the actions it will or would execute without actually doing them. So, dry run, basically. Use this test out uh, your configuration without actually doing anything in your UPS drivers. This may be helpful when defining the SD order directive in your UPS.conf. So, Dan tries this. Uh, He's not at home, to make it even more interesting, I guess. Uh, Indian food is about to be delivered, and what could possibly go wrong? Well, I guess you can never go wrong with Indian food, but that's me. Um, (laughs) So... He has his first uh, command executed, ups-driver-ctl-t because of the test mode, and then shut down. And sure enough, this thing simulates the shutdown. Seems okay, Dan writes. Let's try the nut primary. So that seems also to work. Seems okay, he writes, yep. And testing the actual results. For this, he's changing the power off process to the server's reboot because he's not at home and does not want to reboot uh, here after those upgrades. So before uh, he runs, oh, he grabs for shutdown in all the config files in user local etc slash nut. And there is one, the upsmon.conf, which has the shutdown command in there. So for testing from here, he's going to let that be dash R, which is reboot, not P, which is power off. So he just wants the reboot, not the power off. Because that is exactly what he wants to do after all those recent upgrades, and after that, so he changes that line, and now making that change, he wants to make sure that it was picked up and used. So he restarts the nut ser- uh, stops the nut service, then stops nut underscore ups mon service as well. Then starts both the nut and ups mon services as well. Could also be yeah. <laughs> So now on the nut primary, uh, he will use the command upsmon-c fsd. And what would that do, you ask? Uh, dash c does send a command to the existing UPS process. Well, it commands are fsd, and that means shut down all master UPSs. So actually all without doing uh, or touching the UPS itself. Let's try this before dinner arrives. Oh, Dan is really in a hurry here to get food. Um, (laughs) that's kind of a nice note to this article and sure enough, he executes that and the broadcast message, of course, the system is going down, power fail simulation. Okay. Yep. One of the hosts he saw is, um, logging some things about executing automatic power fail shutdown. Ooh, this is exciting. Uh, Auto logout and shutdown proceeding. Logout, reboot by Dan. Yep. Okay. So the text match is saying that the food is on the way. Okay. Uh, About five minutes later, he could log back into his uh, VPN. And sure enough, now he's waiting on the other servers to come back. So two came up and it takes longer for the RS 720 to reboot because it's complicated, I guess. So there's the food delivery arriving in the meantime. And the pings, and he can log in. Okay, they arrive. Success. Uh, So he checks Nagios later. That's how he monitors his system. Lovely dinner, all green on Nagios. Excellent. Oh, wait. UPS critical. Mm, Yep. He found an interesting situation. The UPS is off, but answering. Huh. Okay, so he can now run a command and power it on. So it's UPS command dash L UPS 02 in his case. And it tells him, ah, power is back. Stop the battery test. Okay. Yeah, so it seems like that went well so far. And she does a couple more things, which we're going to refer you to read the rest of the post because it's interesting. So if you have a UPS, you should definitely test it first offline before you actually need it. And you should be in the room when you test that, not on the other side of the country maybe, um, so, in case something doesn't work, then you can, you know, get your server back to life.
1: Yep. Definitely agree with that. I had, I guess, not this past Monday, but the one before that, we had a prolonged power outage here. And uh, I was woke up at seven something in the morning once the battery got to critical and all the beeping started. Uh, There's like one, two, like five office style UPSs and then a couple of big rack level ones. And it was just like a lot of different Mm -hmm.
0: that's yeah not a good way to wake up and you know they
1: get more and more urgent as the runtime gets down to a couple of minutes (laughs) Uh, and running around and shutting down a bunch of the machines that don't need to be on and trying to keep the ones that do online longer it's like let's keep my router up if i can so that my wi-fi still works you know even if the power's out for a couple more hours
0: yeah essential services that we rely on nowadays so, yeah, definitely a nice write up from Dan. And again, all the commands are there and the outputs are shown so you can compare notes with him or repeat them at home if you uh, want. Then we have uh, login underscore LDAP added to OpenBSD current. Yep.
1: Uh, so, this is a commit over and shown in the OpenBSD journal. And you say that this is LDAP under or login underscore LDAP. This code is based on login underscore LDAP port, but uses our own a LDAP implementation instead of OpenLDAP, It also uses a standalone configuration file instead of login.conf. Since setting this up might contain information not desirable for everyone to see, whereas login.conf, I think, by default, has to be readable by everybody so they can set the stuff as they log in. So this is interesting um, because it allows logging in, uh, you know, authenticating against an LDAP server, but using the ALdap stuff and not needing all of open LDAP to do it. So that's quite interesting.
0: Oh, yes, it is, because for... Company environments where you mostly find LDAP, or but also at home, if you have more than just a single machine that you want to manage and have logins right. in a central uh, place. But you know,
1: sometimes you just want very basic. I want to authenticate against this LDAP server. I don't necessarily want to s- set up all of OpenLDAP and and bring in all these extra applications.
0: Yeah, that's definitely uh, not <laughs> desired. So yeah, good this will come down on OpenBSD sooner or later. I guess sooner when the next release will happen. Cool, very nice. All right, uh, it's time for the f- uh, BSD bits this week. We have in our first item here a link from NetBSD's Twitter. NetBSD current now has GCC 9.3.0 for x86/arm.
1: The NetBSD Foundation Twitter notes that netbsd-current is now running GCC 9.3.0 for um, x86 and arm with the address sanitizer the TSAN. what does t-san stand for
0: uh so, um, what's the t uh, the san-, san-, san sanitizer bro. sanitizer
1: yes we have the address sanitizer the t sanitizer the undefined behavior sanitizer and the l sanitizer <laughs> and they're working on getting it to other platforms soon as well but the big ones, you know, your x86, which is you know 32 and 64 bit Intel, AMD, and the ARM stuff is all there now.
0: Ah, excellent. Uh, then we have not one but two messages or news from MidnightBSD project. The first one is MidnightBSD one point two point eight. That's their announcement here. Uh, there was a security issue in DH client apparently, so they've created a new ISO for one point two point eight for those installing from scratch. And if you're on 1.2.7, you can simply update the source from Git uh, or for stable 1.2 branch and rebuild DH client. OK, now the second news is a bit more exciting because that's MidnightBSD 2.0 current.
1: Yeah. So they mentioned it's now possible to install 2.0 from uh, an existing 1.2.7 machine with a couple of caveats. Uh, it's only been tested on AMD64 so far, but that's probably covers almost every users. Uh, Before install world, you wanna make sure you set make tests to no, or put it in your source.conf because of a problem with libcasper at the moment. Uh, And they also note that merge master is broken after install world. Make sure you do merge master p uh, to do the pre stuff first. Make what is is also broken. Uh, You might wanna comment that line from the uh, share man make file uh, when doing install world and then build make what is with uh, the new compiler and it'll solve the problem.
0: Okay. Yeah, we should uh, definitely uh, cover all the BSDs out there and Midnight BSD is one of them. We don't hear too much from them, but when we hear from them, it's, it's, it's good news. So they move their own project along. Very nice. Speaking of moving along, uh, here is Retro Unix AT86 version one operating system, uh, which has been developed by Erdogan Tan as a special purpose derivation of U- original Unix version one. Ooh, Ooh. this is over at singlix.com. And yeah, this is really retro Unix. Wow.
1: So the source code was ported from PDP 11 Unix assembler syntax to the Microsoft macro assembler, Intel x86 real mode syntax and original source code has been modified to run on the IBM PC-AT compatible, and then they use the uh, Box emulator to, to run it.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. It that certainly seems to work. And yeah, you can see what Unix provided way back when, when it was very young. Cool. You know what's also cool? Making proper backups. And why not make proper backups the right way? Uh, check out tarsnap.com, which gives you your online backup for truly paranoid people. What does that mean? Well, you're making online backups, which means you're moving all your data into the cloud or the internet to store the data there. And in case you need it, you get it back. But what happens there? Well, people can grab it because, well, it's lying there. But with Tarsnap, it's different because it's encrypted before it leaves your computer. So all the files, big or small, are encrypted before they get into the internet or the cloud. And that is done using your local key that you can generate with Tarsnap. And as soon as you have the key or as long as you have the key more like, you can get those backups back on your system and in a readable format, unencrypted. Other people on the internet who might grab your data can only see gibberish that they cannot understand and make heads and tails of. And that's what Tarsnap provides. It gives you the service to do all this locally, create the keys, do a little bit of... uh, compression and deduplication in uh, Colin Percival, who developed this system uh, and runs it today, who developed this and does all the crypto parts. So that is done using Tarsnap locally. Then it's uploaded to the AWS cloud, stored there with other data that also is hopefully encrypted from other people. And once you need your backups, then hopefully have your keys stored separately somewhere. But if you have, then you can unencode or unencrypt the files from the web and get your data back to a very low rate of 250 pico dollars per byte month of encoded data, which is super cheap. So $0.25 per gigabit month, which if you have a lot of data to back up, is very cheap. Source code is also available for the people who are kind of don't trust everything that they use. And they can really look for either backdoors or security fixes or anything that might be not where it should be. And hopefully you don't find anything because it has been looked up by a lot of people because there's also a bug bounty from Tarsnap. If you find anything from small typos to big uh, bugs that may allow intercepting traffic from Tarsnap, that will give you a bit of money. But for other people who just want to use the service, it's available on the BSD systems, the Unixes out there, macOS, Cygwin for Windows, and also the Windows subsystem for Windows. So, no excuse to not make backup because, oh, it's not running on my system. It's there, it's available, so why don't you just use it? Check out tarsnap.com and make backups sooner rather than later. Okay, it's time for feedback and questions in this week's episode. Uh, We continually receive nice feedback from you people about the show, and questions and the questions of course go in here and if questions and feedback is mixed up well then we put it together as well so if you want to send us feedback and questions or anything else about the show or the bsd world then feedback at bsdnow.tv is your email address the first one that we covered here is uh, rick with rc order so rick writes possible topic for your next episode this one rc order uh, RC Order appears in NetBSD around 1998. Together with etc slash RC, it has been a solid way to reliably start services at boot for over 20 years. Not to say there's been no effort to make improvements. Quite the opposite. The trouble is RC Order set the bar very high. So there's a couple of reviews that have been committed from FreeBSD in this case. A couple of them abandoned and or at least one approved. So... See also my own uh, efforts were, uh, over here, which describe yet another RC order implementation, but also include what, how, and why to change etc. RC to support concurrency. And there's a link to ah to the FreeBSD wiki where this is described. Okay, um, there's even more attempts to rewrite RC order than I thought. Some highlights uh, on GitHub. There's rc-order.sh, which is is a POSIX shell rewrite of rc-order. Oh, interesting. And another one, which is a parallel rc-order, updated to use a trampoline support script. Oh, also nice. Uh, Another one in C++ um, with Python and unit tests attached. Wow. And yet another one, move the rc-script invocation inside
1: rc-order. So, RC order actually does the execution for you, not just uh, coming up with the list. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, as a brief overview, the way it works is you basically point the RC order command at the RC.d directory. It reads the shell scripts, and at the top of each, there's some comments that describe I need to run before this service, or I need this service to be running to work, uh-huh, and so on. And the idea is to not make the user configure the entire order themselves just to be able to say oh this uses the network so make sure it runs after the network is up and things like that there's been this desire to be able to do more things at once instead of currently one thing at a time basically rc order generates a list of all the rc.d scripts in the order they should be run and then we run all of them and then each script inside itself takes care of doing am i enabled and if not, skipping. There's been a desire to have this be parallel. It's been tried before a couple of times, but always and managed to run into issues. However, the uh, one of the reviews they noted here, D25389, has been committed now. And so the RC order in FreeBSD's head has a dash P flag that allows uh, it to output, you know, design for running in parallel. And if you look at the, um, the measurements uh, that Rick, who wrote this email, uh, has up on the wiki there, uh, you can see that depending on how many services you have, this can save 15 or 20 seconds off your boot time.
0: Oh, nice. So I would love to see if things get to a certain point of normalcy again. Uh, a Talk about this kind of topic, you know, how RC order history got started and current implementations, things like that. There's certainly a one-hour
1: talk in Yeah, there. you know, we've seen uh, talks about using other systems, like there's a, another system developed by a different NetBSD developer that is... A bit different, like it requires the RC.d files to be a little bit more complicated, but solves a lot of these problems as well. That's the the one Chris Moore and them were trying to do. Do you remember what it was called? OpenRC. OpenRC. Yeah. yeah. But if it, it might be a, a more incremental change if if the, the stock FreeBSD RC order can just support some level of parallelism. I know in the past uh, this is sometimes ended up causing problems because undeclared dependencies or it worked before kind of by accident. You know, this always happened after that. But it wasn't ever written into this the configuration that it had to run after that. But, you know, that's just something that requires working through. It's just people tend to have a bad reaction to it. It worked fine before and now you've broken it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what did you do?
1: But at the same time, we need to be able to overcome that and eventually get to a point where we can have, you know, that extra 20 seconds of boot time back.
0: Yeah, kind of people will miss that. <laughs> if you make something faster, then people will be like, why is it slower again? Yeah. Cool, but definitely um, a nice improvement. And thanks for letting us know about all these things. And
1: Yeah, especially I, I didn't realize that uh, the RC Order 3 one written in C is from another FreeBSD developer. Uh-huh. And they wrote all the tests and so on for it in Python, which is handy to have.
0: Yeah, it seems like uh, people are churning on this and making it uh, a pet project at least. So, yeah, we'll see what's going to happen in this space. Okay. Uh, let's look at the next one, which is from another Dan uh, about the Macchiato bin. So this uh, uh, Macchiato bin is an embedded system, that far I know. But the message reads: On a recent episode, you mentioned the Solid Run Macchiato bin. Unfortunately, FreeBSD doesn't have a driver for Solid Run. Uh, runs Nix, but Solid Run also mis- uh, makes another board called the Honeycomb based on NXP's Layerscape LX2160A multi-core communications processor. Unlike the Macchiato bin, which only has four uh, ARM-8 Cortex-A72 cores at 2 GHz and supports up to 16 GB of RAM, the Honeycomb has 16 A72 cores at 2 GHz, which is also overclockable to at least 2.2 gigahertz. Ooh. And supports two, oh, up to 64 gigabytes of RAM. I'm getting interested. Um, it also has four SPF Plus ports. Solid Run says there are 10 gigabytes, uh, 10 gigabits, of course, each. But NXP's documentation says they can be aggregated into a single 100 gigabits per second port. Ooh. Unfortunately, FreeBSD doesn't have driver for these interfaces either, but with the PCIe X8 slot, you can easily add your own 10 gigabit per second NIC. The Honeycomb also has an NVMe slot and four HCI SATA ports as well. The firmware is still under active development and full sources should be released fairly soon, but some older make-it-work-now sources can be found on GitHub, and Linux kernel patches should be merged soon as well. On the FreeBSD side, we're still waiting for a few divs to be accepted and merged. Okay, just a matter of time. But hopefully, by 13.0 uh, uh, release, we'll have all the non networking functionality ready to go. Hey, sounds good. If you can live with USB Wi Fi, this makes for a pretty awesome ARM workstation at roughly 750 US dollar in a mini ITX form factor. And for what it's worth, world built in 6,897 seconds. Uh, with 16 CPUs, make dash J16. It's not the fastest thing in the world, but if you're in the market for a new, interesting, non-X86 workstations, in a small form factor, this might be the best bang for your buck on the market.
1: Yeah, and it's quite interesting.
0: Yeah, and I guess the, fa- the patches in FreeBSD will be just around the corner. I guess if that people pick up interest in this kind of embedded box, then the patches will flow, I guess. <laughs> to, to coin a Dune term, the patches must flow. Um
1: <laughs> yeah like uh, having the AHCI SATA ports and so on is super helpful and I expect that maybe the Macchiado bin and the Honeycomb Nicks uh, might be supported at some point I'm fairly sure would. because I'm sure that there was a vendor building something FreeBSD on the Macchiado bin so I've assumed that a NIC driver might materialize
0: and looking at the memory available it might also make a nice uh, open ZFS box
1: yeah if you want just A little four hard drive, small thing. uh, Darm makes it nice and low power. Like a NAS or always-on system.
0: Yeah, cool. Uh, Thanks for letting us know, and we'll give you updates if we have something noteworthy from there. Definitely we'll look out for things like that because embedded systems are, and ARM in particular, are interesting. And if there's development happening in there, that's definitely worth reporting. Okay, uh, thanks Dan for this message. And last but not least is Luis uh, with old episodes. Ah, Luis writes, hello, thank you for the wonderful podcast that you guys make. I'm I'm reading what people write. It's not, oh, I'm like making it bigger than it already is. It is really what people write to us. and That's appreciated. Thank you. Um, continue. I found the BSD restoration project to be very interesting. That's from Warner Losch. Uh, my concern is, do you have an archive of past podcasts for listening or download? I was looking to see whether you have something in your archive that I may want to listen to. Thank you very much. Have a nice day.
1: Continue the awesome work you do. So currently on the BSDnow.tv website, uh, the archive goes back about two and a half years to episode 240. Um, I we, uh, All the episodes back to episode one are out there on the internet. I just haven't imported all the notes uh, for the episodes into uh, the new website thingy. Well, I say new website thingy, but it's been two and a half years. Uh, I really need to figure out how to uh, import those older episodes and get them shoehorned in there so that they're available for everybody to look at.
0: Can people find this on archive.org maybe in the meantime?
1: Um, I have no idea. Um, All the episodes are on YouTube. and I think the, the RSS feed, I think, goes all the way back, or one of the RSS feeds does.
0: Okay, so maybe the people can grab it from there. But if they want to have a certain item...
1: So, yeah, like, all the MP3s are there. Otherwise,
0: they have to listen to the whole episode if they just want to look for a certain uh, news item there or feedback.
1: Um, but, yeah, we'll get the, uh, the show notes shoehorned into the website.
0: Yep, if you want to help, maybe, then uh, use our feedback address then we can maybe make something happen sooner. Help is always appreciated. Okay, um, yeah, definitely. um, If people are interested in old stuff, they will be able to find it. It's out there. And that pretty much wraps up this week's episode. Thank you for listening, uh, either after the fact or if you are live on Twitch, which we're also on, twitch.tv slash bsdnow. And of course, on our website, you have the recording from the last time we did the recording. Uh, until the next one so if you really want to see us uh in the flesh or at least on video then we are there otherwise audio is the way to go and yeah till next time